Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff, Ed Lattimore rose to the top of heavyweight boxing, got signed by Rock Nation, and had a successful career inside of the ring. He finished up 13-1-1, but he decided to stop boxing. He also decided to stop drinking just before that, and now Ed spends his time helping other people, and he does it through so many different channels. It's really hard to keep up. The good thing is we talked about all those different channels, all the ways you can listen to, see, and read Ed, and uh, he's a guy that is so compelling and is so bright and so smart. you got a heavyweight boxer who was a military guy who is an esteemed chess player now, and he's a writer. He's got a couple books out, uh, and he's sober. And uh, he gives a lot of great advice and shares a lot of knowledge on how to live a sober life. So this is something you definitely want to hear. I was super pumped to talk to Ed Lattimore. And uh, yeah, man, he's a knockout. But coming up before Ed Lattimore, we got a real knockout. Big bro, Kevin Souza. trunks and weighed in at 219 pounds. Coming to us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he brings a undefeated record of 13 wins. Seven of his 13 wins come by way of knockout. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ed Blackmagic Lattimore. Hello. Ed. Hey, check someone out, man. You're from Philly. I am, Philly. Yeah, and you're from Pittsburgh. And I want to start off, I, I want to apologize for the delay. I mean, you, you call up a, a, a military boxer late. That's, about, that's a good way to get your ass kicked. <laughs> I hate being late. And I think that is something that comes with, uh, it's just like sobriety. I think I was not accountable before. Uh, so yeah. I take it very seriously now. And I was... I was an athlete growing up and in college, so you couldn't be late for that stuff. You know what's funny about boxing, man? People are not going to believe this. Like, for the first, uh, really the first five years of my career, man, everybody was late everywhere. And it kind of like, and, and it really messed with me because I'm like, yo, it's supposed to be like high performers. And, and well, it turns out the more I learned about fighting, the more I'm like, oh, okay, this is like one of those things that separates people as you move up the pyramid. Who can who can adhere to a workout, you know, and, and stay stay on time? I, dude, I got so much to get to with you because I'm, I'm not only interested in, you know, the fact you got sober and this podcast about sobriety, but your story is unbelievable. I want to start from the very beginning. Are you in Pittsburgh now? I'm in Pittsburgh right now. So you were born in Pittsburgh and you were raised in Pittsburgh. Yep. This was this is where, where most of it's gone down. Minus a few <laughs> minus a few um, you know, trips other places for for a while. Well your career took you some other places, took you out to California. I know that. I I read about that, but you grew up in the projects in Pittsburgh. 
What is that like? Uh, a lot of people cannot identify and have no clue what that's like. You know what's funny about growing up in that environment is you don't realize anything's wrong until you step out into another environment. And for me, I think I got exposed to other people relatively early because of uh, the, my school, or really the Pittsburgh Public School District, does this thing called the gifted program. I don't know if they do it anymore, but once they identify you as perhaps being slightly uh, more intelligent or, or talented, they send you to another school one day a week with other kids from around the city. And so I got exposed to a different group of people pretty early on, as early as first grade, I think. <clears throat> and I was like, oh, wow, this is like a different world. These are different people. And, and you know, I'd never really seen white people even in person. Yeah. And that was like all, it was all illuminating. And then I started like, you know, when I got older and I went to middle school and then I, I'd seen people from different backgrounds. I got a, I got exposed a little more, but my middle school was like still a feeder. It wasn't until I got to high school. My high school was kids from, I went to a magnet program way across the city. I actually had to take two buses to high school. And I was like, wow, uh, we, we are like really messed up and like not just kind of messed up. Okay. And so, so I, I say that to say that it didn't seem that rough growing up. It just was like, this is what I have to do. Well, like one of the things that stunned me, I remember asking a kid in ninth grade, like, how many fights he been in? He's like, how many? What's wrong with you? I've never been in a fight. <laughs> how you know, how like, many? How know. often did you fight growing up? Um, so much, like, like, just like it was like a thing. Like, I actually, I thought it was normal. In fact, um, when I got to high school, I was surprised by how not normal uh, it is. And, you know, I see everyone making like a big deal about bullying and that's a big deal. And one of the things I've had to do as an adult is I've had to reconcile like, okay, so while it may, it didn't ruin me, but it probably came pretty close and I'm, I'm lucky, but it's, it's still not a thing that, that your typical student should have to endure, but we all endured it and we all are lost. So I'm like, okay, uh, how do I feel about that? And I have to remember that just because I survived, it doesn't mean, you know, you should go through it. You, you talk about surviving it and you talk about part of your upbringing. I think I've, I've heard you say you were, you were a bit of an outcast and, uh, yeah, yeah you, you, isolated, my <laughs> <laughs> you isolated a great deal, played a lot of video games, but you know, one of the things that kind of, it was a kick to the balls to me when I heard you say it is you had you had a nickname growing up, and oh yeah, man, yeah. <laughs> you know it used to be so traumatic I couldn't say it. Now I'm cool. You know they they used to call me Congo because it was because uh, the Michael Crichton book came out and then they made a movie uh, but with the Apes and so the biggest connection they made was oh this guy looks like an ape we're gonna call him Congo. Did you find and yourself you know fighting a lot because of that? Um, not because of that in particular, because one of the things I mastered very early and it was because of a lot of the emotional, uh, attempted emotional manipulation at home and then in the street, I learned very early how to be relatively non-reactive. I mean, even now it's a, um, it's, I have a weird relationship with this, this, uh, a lot of times I won't, like, it's just very hard to get a rise out of me. 
but I am unbelievably sensitive and aware to any type of emotional manipulation, yeah. and I tend to lash back at it pretty hard. Um, it's it, to shut it down because I've learned that you know you let people think they're they've moved in, even if they haven't, they start acting as if they do, and now you've got a bigger problem, and that deters a lot of conflict after a certain point. Uh, especially when you, uh, you're towering over middle schoolers. And then I got to high school, you know, no one's trying to fight there. People, people settle problems. People trying to get on with their lives, yeah. What, yeah, what, what parents I, care, they show up. <laughs> <laughs> what was the, the drugs and alcohol scene like growing up in the projects? I know the projects were oh, different man. from the ghetto, but... Um, so, so you know, the drugs and alcohol, what, the, I mean, so, so here's what's funny, right? You know, I've, I've written and talked about my sobriety a lot. But and people just assume I grew up drinking. Now, I had my first drink till I was like, I think it was 17 or 18, right? But we were surrounded by that stuff. And my immediate reaction, because, you know, I had a babysitter that was a straight up crackhead. Um, I remember one time I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't make sense of the memory until I was older. But oh, I, in my memory as a young kid, that like I think I was like four because I remember my sister was born, but she she couldn't like move. She was still a baby. I squirted a gun on the couch, uh, a squirt gun on the couch, and and the neighbor and the, the babysitter, the junkie, was super angry with me and was arguing with my mom. My mom had to pay her some money, and I'm like, "What's all this for water?" But turns out that water was heroin, and that squirt gun was a syringe. I found out, and I, and I had like I'd been around them while they were like smoking rock i didn't know it was rock though like i just thought it was a sugar cube and i, well, I couldn't figure out why i couldn't have any little things like that right yeah and then, and then we moved when we moved you know i lived next door to an actual like dealer and that's a different game entirely uh because because like you know you can buy you can buy drugs like on the street right everybody knows about like handoffs and corner boys and things like that but y'all got you also got something like called the trap uh which is like a house you go to, to buy to buy drugs, you know, which is like a silly idea. But uh, we live we live next door to one of those. You know, you were an amateur boxer, then you became a pro boxer. But you were drinking throughout your amateur career. You said you drink, you train, you fight. When did that really start to ramp up? Well, um, I started drinking probably the summer between. Uh, freshman, well, true freshman year, right? So between the age of 17 and 18, right? That summer right after graduating from high school. Started doing that. What was uh, happening to you? What was it, like, well, how was it affecting you? Uh, well, well, here's the cool thing, right? here. This this was great about about when you are you are kind of on top of the world in any, any way, shape, or form, and this theme is going to repeat itself. Uh, when you have one functional thing going or your life doesn't look like a mess, not only can you lie to people, other people will lie for you. And it's not like I had a problem. That's what I tell you to say to myself. I'm just being, being 18, it's being crazy. Right. Yeah. That doesn't mean I don't have a problem. That just means being 18. And then, you know, my, my dad had died at this point. Right. And we ended up, well, not we, I, cause my sister was still 15. Um, I ended up, uh, getting like fifty five thousand dollars in life insurance and a lump sum, and and here's what's crazy that like like now I look at that and go that's not a lot of money at all right, uh, <laughs> but at that age from my background that was a that was a huge come up I had no idea how to handle that money either man like like 
craziness, right? In fact, I was a side note. I was, I was, you know, worse than broken 18 months from receiving it. I was actually overdrawing my bank account to get uh, some money to head back to school. <clears throat> but one of the things I did with the money, I mean, I, while I wasn't super drinking, I was, you know, bottles here, bottles there, man. It was, it was, it was very easy. Were drugs a part to, of your story at all? No, 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 no. Because drugs terrify me. Drugs terrify me to this day. Because of what you saw and growing up? Yeah. Because cause I never... It, it's funny, man. Like, I think... I, th- I think everybody who has some type of addiction looks at other addictions like, oh, how could you do that? Um, but but no, nah, man, I, I never I never drifted to harder drugs, but but booze that was my thing. I said I'm gonna be a be a hard the hardest. I remember thinking that be the hardest drinker in the crew. So you work hard, <laughs> you, know? you, you work hard, play hard because you start to train and you become a successful boxer. How, how do you walk that tightrope, or is it a tightrope of you know you're an alcoholic and uh, and you're becoming you know you, your work is physical. You know you know a guy can show up and get drunk and maybe do a comedy show or do an office job, right? But, like, you got you to train to get ready for fights. Well, you you know what you start doing? It's very easy to, okay, when you're, like, devoted to something, it's easy to, to, to look at what you have to do to be devoted to it, and then you look at all the, the, the places where you can not be. And that's where you really fill and hammer the gap. So, for example, I was really good at, like, not drinking the week of a fight. Like, like amazing. And then I remember the first time I decided to have a beer, like, three days before a fight. And I went and won the fight. And I said, hmm, not so bad anymore, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like those doors <laughs> and, we walk through, man. Yep. And, I, and most of my, my career, I was fine. And then... And that, that's how it go. I would, I would, you know, then, then it turned into, you know, drinking three days before a fight and stuff like that. But if I wasn't prepping for a fight, I would be like crazy. In fact, I remember one time they, I, this is how you know you out of control. Um, they were like, all right, we might have a fight for you. They should do a St. Patrick's Day thing uh, for, for fighting because the Irish and, and the Irish have a big, strong tradition of, of fighting and drinking, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, they they would have this St. Patrick's Day show, and they were like, you know, we don't know if we can get get a guy for you just stay on standby. And I was that lasted till like ten a.m. and then I was just lost, man. I said, look, if they give me a guy, it's gonna be a bad night. <laughs> Unfortunately, they didn't, they didn't give me a guy, right? <laughs> so so it didn't matter. But but I but I that was the like one of the last times I came that close to that line. I mean, I I show up to like certain workouts hung over but not too crazy and then i started like trying to figure out how to fit some drinking in during the day before practice and that's when that, my coach was like what's wrong with you i've seen everything and he has he's seen a lot of stuff man you know but i've never seen a guy try to show up and train uh with a little bit of booze and i was like you, you're out of your mind and that was one of the one of the real wake-up calls Oh, well, my coach yelled at me. That was that was one of them. You kind of underplay. Uh, you well, you don't underplay it, but I've heard you're a humble guy, and you don't. You definitely don't exaggerate. But you were thirteen one and one as a heavyweight. You uh, like I said earlier, you achieved great success. You signed with Rock Nation was like six fights in. Uh, what is that yeah. now on paper? That looks super exciting. 
you know, you sound, especially somebody that's my, <laughs> that's my age who grew up with, you know, Rockefeller and Dame Dash. And, you know, it's like, yeah. uh, there's, there's something very exciting about that. What was that experience like when you signed to Rock Nation? Have you, have you made it or? I'm about to, I'm about to ruin all your dreams and, and expectations about the boxing game. Um, okay. So, so first off, there is like no money in this sport. It is really not. I mean, I tell guys all the time, if you want to do this, you got to have a reason to do it. That is not about money because that won't come. And there's not even really that many girls interested either. So I'd <laughs> probably not do it for that. I mean, you got to really want to want to have it. All right. Now, now I say this to, to to set the tone for my first six professional fights. They were club shows, and they were actually pretty big club shows because because we had a guy, Paul Spatafora, who was making his comeback. Paul Spatafora was like, until Mayweather broke it, he had the, the longest undefeated streak and was world champion. I've heard uh, him. My coach was, yeah, so so my, my coach was Paul Spatafora's coach. Okay. Right? So, so when Paul was getting on cards, i get on cards, and they'd be big, bigger than usual club show cards. Hey, like hey where'd you, where'd you train, by the way? Uh, at World Class Boxing under Tom Yankello. Okay, and this is in Pittsburgh? As yeah, as a pro, that's okay. where I spent my whole career. Okay, <laughs> so I cut you Man. off. All right, so you're talking about these club no, shows. No, no, it's no, a big bro. one. Yeah. Yeah, So, but but the most I made, because when, you, because when you're on these club shows, you got to sell your own tickets. So I'm the sales guy, I'm the promoter, I'm the fighter, I'm the trainer. Yeah, well, I'm the trainer. But, but I, I'm taking on more role than just a fighter. And the most money I made, before Rock Nation was like $700 for a fight. 25% of which immediately disappears to my, my coach and manager, right? Yeah. So because because even though it's not a lot, this is like, yo, we got to eat too. Like, what's up? <laughs> so, yeah. all right, cool. Now I signed with Rock and with, the, with their contract, <laughs> I was making a thousand bucks a round, which is like, which is not that much money still. It's just not a lot. Now, now I get to like say I'm, you know, I'm signed to Rock Nation, and that opens doors and all. But in, but in terms of like doors to a higher income bracket, nah, not really. That was on, didn't really happen. At this point in my life, I'm also uh, in school and in the military, and I'm getting getting money back because of the GI Bill. And so you're in the military I'm, I'm, while while, you, while you're boxing professionally. Yep, National Guard. All of this, all of this is happening at the same time. And so while it was really cool, you know, like, like you know, you post on social media and people go, oh, man, you with Rock Nation. Oh, with Rock Nation, that's cool, that's cool. Um, it, it, it didn't, like, equate too much financially, uh-huh. <laughs> you know. But, but it was cool to say I did that. It gives people sticker shock in a good way. It's like, damn, Rock Nation. So you continue to progress in your career. But as you progress, there's something you mentioned about, you know, you're the sales guy or you're everything. You know, there's something special about boxing. And it's one of the cooler aspects of the sport is you've got to be a personality. I got to I got to like I got to I got to like you (laughs) for whatever reason. Or I got I guess I got to hate you. But, you know, it's almost like wrestling like that. Like you're trying to get money from me. Well, I'm only going to spend money on somebody I want to see a character. How do you create that? So this is this is cool, man. Um, and you know, I talk about this a lot to people. I go, look, I had to learn how to be likable and 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 draw people in without being like this 
it had to fit me naturally, right? Because I'm I'm not the guy that was, I couldn't play the hill. That just wasn't going to be me. I don't have um, you you you've spoken to me now for almost half an hour. You can tell I don't have the thug vernacular. Like I'm not going to be that guy either. Okay, so what I had to do was I had to to appeal to what appealed to me and I was just going out there and letting my work do the talking and, and you know, I got a little more comfortable talking trash and hyping the fight up, but really uh, what what I think worked really well for me is I knocked people out and I'm smaller than, than the average heavyweight and so people come to see it as, as one of my good friends always said like, don't underestimate how much people pay to see a black kid knock people out, even in this day and age. And I was just like, yeah, you know, you're not, you're not wrong. <laughs> and so, so that's what I did, and it made the fights exciting. People were, were talking, and that's what you want to do. You want to generate some buzz, and you got to generate the buzz in a way that's not just in the community because it's it's like like what do you get those fans were coming anyway i gotta bring in fresh blood that was another thing i did that worked really well because of my connections i spent a lot of time drinking in bars and yeah. more specifically drinking in bars with college kids so uh that's a new it's new blood that's new people you know we, we put a lot of on an amateur show he's gonna bring you know 10 or 10 or 15 new people that would not have normally come to a show, and that's good for amateur numbers. Did you feel like drinking was almost like a uh, like a vehicle for success? Like, hey, look, I'm absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You know what? Dad? I remember. Um, I'm actually right talking about this right now because I'm putting together putting together a, a TED talk actually about recovery. Okay, and one of the things <clears throat> that I realized was that people want to touch something beyond the mundane and for them for most people a a club level fighter is beyond the mundane because how many people do they know who have fought and traveled and 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 who fight in general and are like and are not like illiterate and crazy so there was already there was this appeal all right, and so people would pay for my drinks. I remember one time I went out. I said, "This is when I first first trying to quit." I said, "I'm not going to bring my bank card. That's going to be my out. I'm going to tell people I don't have any money. That's why I'm not drinking." And I'm at the bar, and some guy goes, "Yo, I just saw your fight. This is back when YouTube was just getting up there." He goes, "Yo, all your drinks are on me." I said, "God damn it!" Right, <laughs> and then. <clears throat> And then, you know, there was this bar I used to take people to afterwards called Gene's Place after the fight. So Gene's would get a lot of business from this. He'd do great. He'd care to be a favorite of mine. Uh, to where I would go in there and get a free drink. Well, when I when I was trying to stop drinking, but I was I still thought I could, like, tow that line and hang out in the bar, I went to this other bar in the same neighborhood. I'm, I'm down there one night just hanging out with my buddy, drinking a tonic water. All of a sudden, a shot shows up. I look up his Gene. He's like, "Oh, Gene sent these over." He said, "Whatever you want is on him." I'm like, "Ah, here we go." Right. So this is what ends up happening is is people know a way to relate to you, and this is how they're going to touch you, and this is how they know you. They know me through alcohol, so their natural instinct is going to be let's let's kick on some drinks. And these people love fighting. So I feel good being around them, and then I can generate an income from this as well. So, so in many ways, you know, alcohol is, is kind of 
in, in my mind, it's all in my mind, but but I think it's real, has solidified itself as, as a as a real contributor to my success. Wonder when anything could be further from the truth, but that's what I thought. What what happens when you go out to California to train? Uh, so you know it's crazy out there, man. I so when I went out to California, it was it was like a dream come true for an athlete, man. They would they paid for my apartment, they paid for my food, they gave me like a four thousand dollar stipend. All I had to do was train and win boxing matches. That's that's it. Like I think I, I got lost one and it was like at the high level because they were sending people out whenever they lost, right? And I did a good job. But here's the thing, man. I was lonely as heck. Like, L.A., first of all, you can't live in L.A. if you ain't got a driver's license or without a car. I mean, you can, but, like, <laughs> you got to be in the right place. Yeah. My driver's license was suspended. Uh, not, not for anything drinking related. I, I had forgot to pay a ticket. Uh-huh. So I couldn't do anything with that. <clears throat> and, and I wasn't really messing with other fighters. I never really have. There's a few I get along with uh, just is people like I get along with everybody, but like we're gonna go kick and hang out, like it never happened. Yeah. <laughs> and so what I what I started to do, man, I started to drink and and, and drink a lot. Check this out, right? Yeah, you'll be able to appreciate this based on your your zip code or your area code. Pennsylvania is one of two states in in the country where the government controls the liquor distribution. Okay. Yeah. yeah so we got to go to wines and spirits. I didn't know that. You know, Chris Rock's got that joke. It's either Chris Rock or Dave Chappelle. I don't want to be that, you know, all black people look the same dude. But, like, <laughs> uh, he got that joke where he's like, you got to prepare me for when I go to the projects. Every time you know, you're about to go to the hood, you see liquor store, gun store, gun store, liquor store, liquor store. I didn't get that joke until I moved to California. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> because in California, I go right across the street to the Target and get some booze, right? Get a, get a bottle right there in the Target. It was, it was, it was love, man. What what I happens? I had this great idea. Go ahead. You had this yeah, great idea. I, 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 I had this great idea, man. I was like, look, let me. Uh, I miss hanging out with everybody. These good feelings. Let me drink to try and recreate those feelings. And, and it, you know, it worked. But that's a deal with the devil, man. Uh, you're you're in bad shape when you start doing that. And that's what I did. So I drank a whole lot when I was out there. Did you find yourself suffering consequences from your drinking? No, no. In fact. Um, I, I did all right because, because here's the thing: there was nobody to, to to hang out with. There was nobody to see. All I had to do was go train. I tried to build a bit of a social life, but I, but I didn't know how to socialize without booze. And and you can't go anywhere and, and drive uh, or go anywhere without driving. So that was hard. So so while I didn't suffer any consequences per se, uh, it's it's not like I was getting better i mean and this is luck i mean it's just a lot of luck yeah and you're out there and you continue to fight and then what continue to fight what happens ed when you're like like i i i no longer need to do this because that's tough i mean it sounds like you stopped first of all you're you're like i said earlier you're a smart guy like even when you realize that boxing's not going to really give you a ton of money you know you go go with the national guard but did you just decide hey this is not working in my life or did, so, or did, so, or did something uh, happen man. man i wish i had woke up one day and was like man you know what huh. done with alcohol like no nah. man i i got back from so when you when you enlist you got to go away to basic training and that's 10 weeks 
And then my AIT, Advanced Individual Training, that was another, it was supposed to be 22 weeks, but they shortened it. And I ended up getting home like at the end of December. So I went out with my friends one night and I had a night, you know, that I'll never forget if I could remember it, you know. And what ended up happening, apparently, you know, I showed up, started drinking, pissed some people off, ended up at my friend's house. I don't have any idea how I got there. But and then I'm looking through my phone, making sure I didn't, didn't send anything stupid. I'm, I'm sure I did. I just can't remember anything. But um, it was at that moment that I was like, "Yo, this is this is not going to work. Like, I got a lot to lose now because I just got out the army, or not just got out, but just like started my career in the army. I got out of basic training. Uh, my pro career was going to kick back up because I I left. I had three pro fights before I enlisted, or before I left for training. I came back. That was going to be you know, kicked up. I, school was on, on the agenda now. I was enrolled <clears throat> and I had just met the woman who I'm, I'm still with now, you know, about to, about to get married. I was 10 years ago. And I said, I don't want to mess that relationship up. If, uh, well, if, if it goes sour, I want it to go sour because, because I'm a genuine asshole, not because I do something. Strong, <laughs> the know? stakes got too so, high. Yeah. I see, you know, so I finally, I think, I think what really happened in the weirdest way, man, it sounds like I'm doing all this stuff and doing well, and, and I, I'm doing now. But I think at that point in my life, I, I didn't really care. I, I think I I gave myself things to care about, and I got and, and another powerful thing that happened is you know I, I think I think everybody who quits drinking has a pain point, and they're like, "Yo, this hurts," but you know they're they're stuck in in the in the cycle, whatever. I was able to my time away at basic. And then going forward with school and everything too, I was able to finally build for the first time ever, probably uh, a relationship, a new set of relationships in my life where alcohol was not focused. And mm-hmm. I'm like, yo, this guy's pretty cool. And not identity was strong enough to where, you know, I, that was the last time. And uh, December 22nd was the last day I had alcohol. What was that, 2013? 2013. So this year it'll be nine years. So three years later is your last professional fight, December of, of 2016. Again, I said it. You're, yep. You you retire at 13, one and one. Look, man, I got it. Why, why, why'd you stop fighting? Like, what uh, was the man. reason? <laughs> you know, what, you know, what's funny, man. Because some people, would... I want people to, to go to YouTube, Google. <laughs> I mean, YouTube at, at Lattimore, you're beating people's ass. You're fighting what yeah, seemed there's, there's to be pretty fight. big there's fights. Fight I, there's, yeah, there's the fight I get my ass kicked in too, you know, um, <laughs> on YouTube. But there's only is, one. You know, that's another story. Um, so, so here's why I stopped fighting, man. This, this is the truth, and this, this is a bit of a multifaceted answer. I'll try and condense it as much as possible. Uh, fighting is a very hard way to earn a hard living. I'm I'm investing 30 to 40 hours training. I'm not talking about time in the gym. I mean, like where I'm actually moving, hitting stuff, studying film, whatever, right? And I, you you heard the pay, you know. And so the pay is is it's old. It's not as much as you would expect, certainly for the investment of energy. All right, so there's that part. And and I realized I when I realized I figured out between. We'll say what 2017, 2017 and 2018, really. Uh, that's when I figured out that I like people like reading what I write, yeah, and I and I can like monetize that and really make a decent living 
and that's what I've been doing pretty much ever since. And, you know, I had a, I had a short gig where I really that I really enjoyed. I took it on because I needed needed it at first, and then I stuck with it even if I did after I didn't need the money anymore. Where I was tutoring kids in uh, physics and and math. I had a kid in chemistry too, but you know, chemistry is, is pretty straightforward. Uh, but, but it's not easy. Math, I, had, I had a I had a great great time doing that. But I was also, you know, I self-published my first book, and then I learned that I was like, oh, I've got this mailing list. People will pay me. So you got two books published. I'm out there. I got, mm-hmm. I, I got, I, yeah, two published. <laughs> Not caring what other people think is a superpower. Um, and uh, sober letters to my drunken self. Uh, people can yeah. find those on Amazon. And 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 your blog starts, uh, mind and fist. And yeah. did you start the blog? Uh, synonymous with with stopping drinking was that an outlet where you could be honest about what was happening with you? No, you know I started the blog because I've always loved writing, mm-hmm. I, and I had tried other blogs before around focused around different topics. And then in 2012, I said, you know what, Ed Lattimore is going to be someone one day, and whatever he decides to talk about or write about or be about. I want people to follow me and be interested. This is before I knew anything about SEO. It turns out I made a really smart decision from an SEO perspective, but I just wanted the freedom what's, to write what's, about what's, whatever. What's, what's SEO? Search engine optimization. Oh. So people find me uh, looking up ideas. Or now, you know, now, now my name is, is a search term. People will search my name, and my website, you know, shows up. Yeah, and that's cool. And when, you know, people it's, it's real to cool. EdLattimore.com. <laughs> EdLattimore.com is a website, and you can find all kinds of stuff on there. Uh, you write you write a lot about being sober, and you write a lot about other stuff. And like you mentioned, you're a compelling writer. Yeah. So that 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 you know really changed my life. That and social media, and and I'll never forget this when I when I actually stopped. Now now when I stopped mentally is very different than when I stopped officially physically because i think every fighter harbors the idea that he's going to come back for at least you know two or three years and then i i think last year i was like yeah i'm done with this and in fact i know exactly what it was i was helping roy jones jr i was the sparring partner for him for his fight against tyson because my coach is roy jones coach as well and he was like, hey man you still in shape and i'm like oh yeah i'm still in shape i help you out so i, I come up and work there but when i stopped uh training when i when i stopped it was May, May 2018. We had a comeback fight because I took a year off after the end of December 2016. Uh, and then I was coming back in the gym. So I took all 2017 off. Then 2018, I was in there working out, getting ready. I got offered a fight against this dude in New Zealand. They were going to pay for me to come out there and everything and promote the fight two weeks before. It was a guy I was almost certainly just going to walk through and, and be pretty, pretty well-handedly. And I said, let me go spar. Without my coach permission or without my coach, let me go spar this kid so he'll come and spar us. And while we were sparring, he he cracked me because he had been because I was a better fighter and I was just as physically strong, but I underestimated how much of a difference it would make if he's been training for eighteen months continuously and I'm just getting back into it. So he got me with a good shot, ended up breaking my orbital and giving me a pretty bad concussion. And my coach, after he finished yelling at me, he was like, look, man, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, do you see how your life is going right now? Why are you still fighting? Because at that point, I had just graduated. And I had my first five-figure month online, pure from from 
just selling stuff and writing. Yeah. And he said, you know, you, you're, you're doing great. Why are you still here? And, and hearing that from my coach uh, made made a big difference because there are a lot of other people who could have said something like that to me and I'd have been like, oh, yeah, whatever. But here's somebody with, like, vested financial interest in me continuing to fight. And he's like, you don't need to do this. He's like, I'll train you if you want to, but you don't need to. So I really thought about that. And I was like, you know, one of the things I've always wanted to do, there's a whole wide world I want to see and travel and visit to. And that's really hard to do when you train. We tried it. You can't, you just can't. <laughs> uh, between working out and then being in a gym and being ready for fights, you can't go places when you, you're training. So, so yeah, that, that's so ultimately why I stopped is is I found a better way to make a living that was less painful. And on and then now there's some other supplementary stuff too. I'm only six one. Uh the average height of these guys now, people have crunched it on different sites, six four to six five. Uh that's a big difference when there's an unlimited weight cap. Like if if we all had to come in at like two oh one that'd be different. But when you can just build muscle and frame, well, look at the top 10 heavyweights fighting right now. There's not a single one under six, three. Yeah. You know, so I said, you know, how, what would the amount of energy and effort it would take to get there? Is it worth it? No, it's cool. To, like, like, it's cool to be like, Oh, I'm a fighter. But then when you got to be a fighter, I know, I know what that's like. I don't want to go back to that. We'll get back to this conversation in a second, but right now a word from our sponsors. The all-new Chevy Colorado is made for more. Stacked with the latest in-vehicle technologies like a class-leading 11-inch diagonal center touchscreen and an extra-large wireless charging pad. Plus, it features wireless Apple CarPlay and Android Auto compatibility to make staying connected easy wherever your adventure takes you. Chevy Colorado. Made for more. Learn more at Chevrolet.com slash truck slash Colorado. Claims based on latest competitive data. You, so you, you, you're very real. You're very real uh, in 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 the way that you write and the way that you talk, and you write a lot about sobriety. What are some of the things that you've been able to author that have been very helpful to people? Um, people have so, so just just off the top of my head, I I just wrote an article about about dealing with the death of of your parents and. And a lot of people got a lot out of that. I was really surprised because I just, you know, I, I try to write what's true to me and what's true to the search engine, right? Um, but if I have to pick one, I usually write what's true to me. And, and that really helped people because I'm just writing about my thoughts and, and how I dealt with them and how I experienced them. All of my stuff on, on quitting pornography addiction, that has really resonated strongly with, with God. I didn't realize how much of a problem it was, but those articles on my site, are by far the most viewed in organic search. So when people are searching, they come and find it, and I get somebody writing me um, telling me that, that that helped them out. I got a program about vice breakers breaking bad habits uh, where, where I get testimonials like, you know, some woman told me she bought the program for this this girl she watches, and she has it, and the girl stopped cutting. And I was like, I was never even trying to create that kind yeah. of thing. I was just trying to help people with, with alcohol and booze. I didn't know the principles apply to stuff like that. And you're putting so, great stuff out there into the <clears> universe. <throat> and one of the things I've heard you talk about is, dude, and it helped me, uh, you know, that sober guy, our, our, our buddy Shane Raymer ha had you on and you were talking to him about, 
socializing and having fun and going out without being drunk and without alcohol and being comfortable in your own skin. I think a lot of people equate drinking with having fun. And you have a great way of articulating that about, hey, man, you got to get comfortable with who you are. And then you can. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That was a big because I thought about that issue. And that was going to be an issue because of who I am, because I am. I don't I don't know if I qualify as like a super pure crazy extrovert, but I, I definitely do well around people and communicating. And one of the issues I was facing when I first stopped drinking was everything was in a bar. And so if I'm going to go, how am I going to reconcile this going to a bar and I'm not drinking? And then if you spend too much time, you eventually become, become you know, what you're around. What is the old saying? You know, you spend enough time in a barbershop, you're eventually going to get a haircut yeah. kind of deal. So you spend enough time in a bar, eventually you're going to do a shot. So I had to figure out how to deal with that. And, and one of the things I realized is that you're in control where you socialize. And that, that that might sound novel to, to a lot of people, but there's nothing that says you have to connect with your friends at the bar. It, but what it requires of you to do is really invest in your relationships, and that's what I've done. You know, I'm like, hey, man, do you want to get together for, for some coffee and chat? You know, see how things are going in your life. Let's play some chess. Oh, do you want to go to a do a ball game or something? Or we'll hit the gym. Things like that. You know, I remember when I was in when I went to Fort Worth the first time, and I went by myself because I, there was a um a dinner I was going to, and and I had a free night. And my brain, I remember old me would be like, "Where are the bars? Let's go!" Yeah, yeah. And I ended up. I ended up finding uh, the the largest Alamo Museum uh, east of the Mississippi. That's what they build themselves as. And I also, or west of the Mississippi, and I also ended up going to a really cool jazz concert. And these are just the kind of ways you start seeing the world when you stop drinking, but you refuse to stop being involved with the world. Because I think a lot of people think when you stop drinking, that shuts down a bunch of things that you can do. And that is sad, but I understand how one comes to that conclusion. But, but since I would not accept that, uh, now I, I just have so many ways and things to do and ways to look at the world. And, and it makes you more curious when you go other places because uh, the, like people really like do bar tours and like um, <laughs> distillery tours and like that's their thing and since that's not my thing my brain automatic doesn't even think about it and I'm automatically scanning the area for for what to do what to see and and who to connect with but you and don't have really to stay inside you don't have to stay right. inside you get out you connect with people and there's a there's a vibe and energy you get off that, that you, kind of the same thing. I, for me, I used to get off alcohol and drugs, being with somebody, being real, putting myself in situations outside of my norm, uh, make me feel excited and stuff. And it's interesting, you know? It is, it's, it's great. And here's a cool thing that happens. You eventually, and, and I describe it as a sobriety habit, because just like you have an alcohol habit, the, the opposite of that is a sobriety habit. And, and, it, and it eventually becomes so strong. Like, like I can go. Like, I watched the Super Bowl with my buddies in a bar. I'm not looking like, I'm not, like, shaking like, oh, God, I can't, you know. No, I don't, I don't have those issues. 
But I also, the moment I get bored, and here's what here's what's different. The moment I get bored, I'm like, all right, guys, I'm out. Well, you know, I'll catch you guys another night or whatever. When I go out for a game, if I'm bored by halftime, I just go home instead of ordering a drink to keep myself out. It's it's increased, it's reduced the quantity of social touches, but it's it's you know 10x. The, the quality. Dude, you know, that's a, I do the exact same there. thing. I do the exact same thing. And I think, <laughs> and I think, no, but I, and I believe it goes to what you're talking about. It, you need to be comfortable in your own skin to do that too. Because a lot of times for me, I'm people pleasing. I'm like, Oh, if I get up and say I'm leaving, people are going to be like, Oh, where are you going? First of all, they're not going to be like that. Nobody gives a shit. Right. And then second, right. second of all, <laughs> second of all, I, you wrote a book on it, but I can't give a shit what other people think. Yeah, you got to focus on you, man, because well, here's the thing, and maybe you, you had this exact experience or something similar. When when I got sober, or rather before, one of the things that really impeded me, I think probably set me back almost two years, is, is I went to my friends who I was drinking with and talked to them about my thoughts of getting sober. And when you're, when you're with people, when you ask them about your, if they think you drink too much and they're also drinking, that puts them in a, in a tricky spot. And maybe they don't realize it, but they're, it's a bit of cognitive dissonance. They can't say yes, because it's going to make, it's going to cause them to pull in on you. And they would like to not say, and they'd like to say, you know, uh, no, but what if, you know, them saying, you know, you got an issue, let's them help you get help but they don't see it that way because they see themselves through you as in their surroundings yeah so they're they're telling me you know, i'm a friend today age forever man are you sure i was like uh and I, I questioned it right yeah but now now i don't have that that issue because because i'm more worried about me i'm so much more worried about me and i know that if i control this the little bit of social interaction, the the low quality, but high quantity social interactions that I miss out on, they don't. They, they, it's it's a fine trade off for for one never having an issue uh, with, with who I text or what I text or are never getting behind the wheel thinking it's only uh, a mile down the road or things like that. But the the trade off is well worth it. Well, what do you tell? And I want you to give away all the secrets. But what do you tell people that <laughs> that are that stop drinking and and are trying to not care what other people think? Like I said, you wrote, you wrote a book on this. But how do you how do people stop worrying about what other people think? I know it's a that's well, a loaded you gotta, topic. You got to you you, you got to take baby steps, man. Like, um, I would never ever tell somebody stop drinking and hang out with the same people in the same places. Nope. Cause that's a recipe for failure. Instead, you got to go start building a life that you're really comfortable and proud of. Uh, and, and without alcohol, however you do that is however you do it. There, there are numerous ways to do it. But when you have a life that you feel good and com- comfortable with and strongly about, then you're you're not really worried about what other people think. In fact, you're probably going to develop a bit of uh, arrogance <laughs> towards them and go, well, look at you. You need alcohol to have a good time. I'm cool over here, right? And that is, you know, may, maybe the outcome happens, maybe it doesn't, but the, the general principle still stands to be proud of something else in your life. So you're not, you, you only care when you feel like that's important, Okay. When that stops being important, when that approval stops being important, 
Oh, that's a big deal. I remember one of the, one of the hardest people for me to, to talk about my sobriety to uh, what was like this girl who I'm like not involved with whatever, but all she knew me was is a fun drunk guy. Yeah. And we're not, we don't have, and I, and I, you know, because that's a new identity. And I used to care about that. And now it's like this, like that guy, I can't, like, I don't want to be anything associated with the old guy. if you want to, cool. If, uh, but it's not for me and it's not a thought process anymore in my mind. I, I like you being vulnerable and telling people that because again, like here we are, we got, we got this heavyweight boxer, uh, and, uh, you know, you're, you're people pleasing, right? Like, just like, you know, and, and, and you had to walk into the ring and not be worried about getting embarrassed. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, man, that's. If there's one place yeah. to be embarrassed, like, you know, guys are like listening to this and, you know, they're thinking, well, I'm, I'm going to go to a basketball game with the girl for the first time and not be drinking. Like, uh, what if she rejects me? You know, and, uh, you know, here you are talking about walking into the ring, <laughs> you know, one mano yeah. a mano. That, I got to believe that's the ultimate test of possibly getting embarrassed. I, You know what? I really think that. So, so I'll just tell you a story, man. This, this is how I'm a weird duck, man. When I was out in L.A., they brought out a sports psychologist to evaluate all of us. And and the guys, and I guess he used to, to what is it, the hockey team, the Kings, I think? Yeah, um, uh, L.A. Kings. And and he, he used to work with them, and he was talking about how he'd never seen somebody uh, quite like me in that, you know, as we get closer to the ring, we get closer to the fight. Uh, all of my symptoms of anxiety get lower and lower, and I and I thought that was crazy because one of the things because that's trained. I didn't wake up like that. Yeah. Uh, I I learned that uh, I learned how to breathe and I learned where to put my mind so I could go in there and not be anxious because I know that when the more emotional your mind is, the harder it is for you uh, to react in control. Right, you're going to be just as reactive as an emotional being, but it may not be a a calculated reaction of the way. And it, oh, that's weird. A calculated no, reaction. Where did you but, put your mind? Yeah. So the, that is that's one of those things that I learned to do. And that same principle, though, uh, is it, hard to execute socially for whatever reason. I think it's because. I know that in a ring, the first thing I'm trying to prove is that I'm not going to crumble when I get hit. And and I can strengthen myself and train myself to be prepared. There's really no way to prepare for being outcast except for being outcast. And I think also why I didn't think about that until now, this is like therapy sometimes, these podcasts. Uh, one of the things that I think going to the Army train me to do and then for the first time in a long time was be be outcast because i went when i was 28 man yeah. <laughs> so that's a lot of a lot of kids uh, <laughs> a lot of kids they were probably the harder part than, than the drill sergeants to do it but yeah you you get used to to feeling different and you realize you know you're not you're not different in a negative way you're different in a real empowering way once you see it that way um, you you kind of you kind of feel bad for people who are not capable of of stepping away who can't see another way to socialize. John Lucas, NBA great. He's still a coach uh, with the Rockets, I think, in some capacity. But he his his career ended because of cocaine and and and, uh, and uh, alcohol abuse, and he got sober. 
and he you know works with athletes um who you know are trying to get sober and recover whatever and he says that it's very very hard for the athlete to get sober because you need to have that ego to go and beat somebody's ass or beat somebody off the dribble was that difficult for you and how did you uh if you like like crush your ego you know they say the ego has to be smashed how did you figure that out well, you, you know, that that's very true, man, because you want to be, I, I used to say, I wanted to be known as the dude that could out drink everybody else, right? I wanted to be that guy, okay? And there's a certain, certain what, uh, bravado or rev- reverence, that's what I want to say, yeah, reverence, okay, yeah. yeah, it's it's given to that. And I fed off of it, and it was, it was part of me for a while, but the way I beat it and the way I dealt with it, is is I just made a very I just looked at the cost and benefits. And I looked at them real sober and what a long guy. And it was right after it was right after I had, you know, was hungover and drunk and I was looking at all of this and I said, Look, man, if I continue this because this was a big thought of my then now this was also a big thought of my mind too, is like long term. Because I'm making all these long-term moves, right, mm-hmm. for for the positives. I'm building the bucket up, but I still got this big old hole in the bottom, all right? So I said, I got to figure out how I'm going to fill this hole. And and I looked at what I was doing. I looked at it and said, if I'm still doing this in five years, well, when will I make it that long? And and how will my life look? And And I had figured out, I hadn't put it in the words yet, but I had intuitively started to feel people and your relationships with them are the most important thing. And I was damaging my relationships by drinking. People have a tolerance for for you when you do stupid stuff under the influence, but only for so long. It's not. It's only a matter of time before you turn into that guy that people don't invite because you can't hold your alcohol. Yeah, and you even, you, even you, you get to work, you. and you as a as a pro yeah. fighter, I'm guessing you're working with you're working with a pretty long leash. People probably give you, oh, yeah, cut you a lot oh, of slack. Sure. Yeah, but but I I started to think, you know, and this is this is a cool thing about having a heart. Um, I don't think that's a weakness to have morality. Uh, is that you start thinking like, you know, do you want people to tolerate you or do you want people to celebrate you? And that's how I felt because when they're giving you a long leash, they're tolerating you. But if they don't have to give you a leash, they're celebrating and looking forward to you. You know, so I, I dealt with things like, you know, finding out that my friends were uh, saying horrible things about me because of the way I behaved and under the influence. I dealt with, you know, people deciding they're not going to interact with me. I probably, you know, I think about all the friends and relationships I could have if if I knew how to control myself or I didn't drink. But I ruined those. And I used to justify it. I used to say, oh, you know, if you're not going to like me when I'm drunk, you're probably not going to like me sober, which is ridiculous. Like, hearing it come out of my mouth now. And I also used to say, I'd be very proud of this too. That ninety-five percent of my interpersonal problems are either caused or exacerbated by alcohol. I'd be, you know, so that means I'm cool. That's how I looked at it. That if only five percent of the problems in my life uh, are, are organic, I th- I said I was cool. When the reality is, it's like no, the the, the issue is like ninety-five percent of your <laughs> life is a prize of mess because of alcohol. 
But but those are the, that's the perspective you start to take on these things, and that's why it can be just super. The people people give you that leash, and you if you don't realize it's a leash, you're going you know use it up. What do they say? You give somebody enough rope, man, they're gonna hang themselves with it, and that is exactly what will happen if you don't realize that you you get you're just getting a long rope. <laughs> Yo, you you talk about something. I'm not trying to keep you here all day, but this is uh. We'll wrap up here in a little bit. You talk about something where, because you mentioned the 95%. Man, you uh, blew me away hearing you talk about sexual assaults on college campuses. Where, Oh, yeah, man. 95% are alcohol-related, right? Yeah, so so I'm actually going to put this. I I, I wrote this chapter, and I was going to include it in the book, Sober Letters. But I didn't feel like when I sober letters over to my drunken self book, was a book, right? Sober, yeah, letters. sober letters to my drunken self. Yeah. When I when I looked over the floor of the book, I said, "While wow, this is tangentially relevant, it is not. Um, it, it doesn't contribute to the overall flow of the story." But but I kept it because I did did good research, and, and my math wasn't as good as it, it is now. So I'm probably when I go back and release it, I'm going to uh, crunch it. But my, my crude math and, and heavy research, because I had to like dig up different sources, because this information isn't sitting in one database, is that you know if you remove alcohol from the equation, then you eliminate uh, 95% of the sexual assaults reported against women aged 18 to 24. And I thought that was so significant in light of, and, and this was right around when I put out Silver Letters, this was right around the, um, uh, I want to say Brock Lesnar, but I know that's not right. Brock Turner, maybe, uh, the swimmer out in. Oh, yeah, yeah, the guy at, the guy um, at Stanford. Stanford. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and and so it, this raises that, that debate again, and, and everyone's like, you know, tell boys not to sexually assault. Don't tell us to stop drinking. I'm mean, like, don't you understand what alcohol does to you? It's not that these guys are walking around as rapists anymore that somebody's walking around with murderous intent who kills somebody under the influence behind the wheel. It's that the, the alcohol literally has this problem or, or has this effect or makes it more likely. And, and I had just, you know, I had come to that conclusion anecdotally. And I was listening to some research to put together for my talk. And turns out, lo and behold, you know, one of the things that happens if you have more dopamine receptors than usual is that when you drink alcohol, it's going to fire up your your feelings to be to be uh, sexually aggressive, right? As opposed to some people with, with fewer ones, they tend to want to go to sleep. That's, yeah, I mean, I, I lived the it. Difference. <laughs> so. Uh, so when I wrote that text, I was just looking, I was like, man, this is crazy. And no one is ever going to touch this it's because, nuts. because it, it makes a, it, it's huge. Like we can't, it, it really bothers me. Like, like that, that, that's a stat. I'm happy you like brought that up. Cause, cause I've mentioned it on a few podcasts and then yeah, everyone down and then someone grabs that gym and runs with it. But that tells you how powerful, because you're young. You, you, you know, of course you think you, you know it all at 23. Your brain's not even finished for me yet. And like, I look at myself at 23 and I'm like, man, like when I see 23 year old kids now, I'm like, wow, you're like, you're a child. And, <laughs> and when and they're drunk, when, the, even... <laughs> when, they're, when they're drunk, I'm terrified, right? When they're like wasted, oh, yeah, you ever yeah. get a, a brown bunch of young kids wasted? You're like, get 
me out of yep. here now. And you used to be that one. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I used to be yeah. one of them. Oh, and there's yeah. nothing more terrifying, man, than like a, a childish mind in an adult body. Like that is an alcohol is. It, it takes that recipe right there, uh, that combination, I guess, and then it just it just brings out the worst of all worlds, like the, the ability to have responsibility, but the lack of maturity to to wield it, you know, correctly, and it just is a bad, bad, you know, recipe. What other things do you tell people? Uh, about about getting sober, just a, a couple more key things because I I feel like we're helping some people with this, but a couple more key nuggets before I let you go. Um, you, you know, I tell people that sobriety is the is the best gift I ever gave myself, and and I always say that my sobriety date is my second birthday. There's February 15th when I was actually born, and then there's December 23rd where I realized that this is my life to really handle and take control over. You know, when you don't drink, you don't, you just don't, I, the way I describe it is like this. I'll just use my exact terminology. There are entire timelines that just don't exist, and you never have to walk down them. There are problems that you'll never have uh, that you just, you don't even realize how 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 detrimental they could be. Like we were at a wedding, uh, and and we were in bed by like ten o'clock. And why is this significant? Because like uh, one of the guests was on a cocaine binge and was going crazy, and law got involved, and everything went crazy with all the guests. And we woke up like, what happened? Oh, we were in bed at you know ten o'clock. Because well, what is there to do if you're not drinking yeah. a party and you go to sleep? And you know that there are entire one of the reasons I stopped drinking because I had I had the the foresight to understand or the understanding of human nature to understand that if I'm still drinking I'm giving myself an excuse to go out and weaken my inhibitions uh, that I will put this relationship that I I felt like at the time and I was right had potential and so I said you know it allows you to build solid connections with people that really matter. And at the end of the day, I think that's all we have is our, our connections with other people and alcohol really interferes with building that, especially when you, when you abuse it. Right. Uh, yeah. like, I'm, I'm not the guy that's going to say, you know, no one should ever drink Cause if, when you're, when you have, when you can like control it, like, like, you know, when my fiance drinks, she'll open up a bottle of wine, pour glass, drink half the glass, and then not only will a glass get empty, like poured out because she won't finish it, but this bottle of wine will sit there for another six or seven months before she opens it again. Yeah, That's how people, you know, <laughs> I don't understand people. that. Yeah. I don't get it, but but it works uh, for her. And if you can drink like that, more power to you. But if you're excessive with it, you don't realize what you're missing. You don't like it, and that's really, if I could sum it up, you don't realize what you're missing because you're you're constantly sick. So sick is like your new normal. Something you've been writing a lot about uh, is is social media, and uh, it it can be addictive to people. How, how do you 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 seem to have uh, mastered the art of social media? How do you take it in moderation? I'm, I'm, whenever I'm on social media, I'm always on it as a producer. Very rarely, and I mean like. Very rarely am I ever just just scrolling, like because I don't get anything from that. Instead, I understand. I recognize what this is. It is an incredible tool for connection and income generation. 
So I use it like a tool. And I use it also because because I think I'm putting out a benign, I'm not even benign, even better, helpful. a helpful, yeah. useful message. I I don't have a problem coming up with things to say and deliver. So for me, it is very much a tool to help. It is not a tool for indulgence. It's, it's a tool to inspire, not a tool of distraction. And that, that's really what it boils down to. All right. Any, anything else? Any, any, I mean, uh, people can find you at edlattimore.com. Uh, edlattimore.com. I'm, I'm at Lattimore everywhere. If anybody else <laughs> is born with that name and wants to like do something, they are out of luck. I'm at Lattimore on Twitter, at Lattimore Instagram, edlattimore.com is my website. My Facebook is at Lattimore Boxer. And then my regular Facebook is at Lattimore. Like, I, I got the whole thing on lock. What did you, uh, what, what, what music did you enter the ring to? Was it consistent or uh, did you have a bunch it of was, different? It was, it, it was pretty consistent, man. I love the way by the uh, Dolly the Peoples. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that, yeah, that's unique. Yeah, show me the way, you know. It's one of my favorite songs, man. <laughs> Hard work ain't easy, but easy usually ain't worth it. That's one of those lines from that song. We'll put that. Yeah, we'll, we'll put, we'll put that, that in. Working out. We'll put that in here. What did you do? How did you find that headspace when you were walking into the ring? Where did you put your brain to where you weren't so too emotional? Because a lot, of, a lot of athletes listen to that. Listen to this, and some young athletes. Where do you put your brain to where you're not? totally reactive and over-emotional. How did you do that? Um, I'll take you back right before the fight, uh, the weeks up to the fight. I would use, I used to have a big problem where I would, this is why I say this is trained, so I don't, you know, <laughs> I always never seen it. I'm sure it, it just didn't manifest the way it manifests in me. So I used to have nightmares before fights that I would be knocked out in front of everybody. And, and I would have these nightmares before like, every fight. This is when I was an amateur. And the way I learned to deal with that, I said, okay, this tells me that I don't feel like I'm as prepared as I could be. So let me go and become as prepared as I could be. So my my um antidote to that type of nervousness or distraction or anxiety is preparation. And as long as I feel like I am prepared and I'm the only one in control of that, no one else is, right? Mm. Uh, when I feel like I'm prepared and I put the reps in, then everything else is just about, is just about things I can't control. And I, I guess if we, that's where that goes is I make sure I focus on, on what I can control. And we, we as athletes tend to have a, a uh, distorted sense of what we can't control. We think we can control the score by pushing harder. We think we can control the outcome of the play by trying harder. You're going to try as hard as you can, and sometimes the wind blows and the ball goes off. You know, or the ref sees it differently. Uh, and and you can't control any of that. Sometimes you can't control if, if a killer lines up across from you and he's just better prepared that day. As long as you came and you were as prepared as you could be, you can leave with some pride, but the outcome is beyond your your control, and it's important to remember that. So put your mind on the process. I always thought about my training and what I'll do when, when, you know, when things happen. I'm just running to the general game plan because that's what I can control. What's the craziest thing you ever did to promote a fight? <laughs> Man, let me 
the, the craziest thing? Ooh, I'm trying to think. Or, or was there was there something you said you mentioned? You know, being the uh, the Dave Chappelle line from the Rick oh, James episode. Oh, you know what? Dude, yeah, I, I just thought about it. Let me let me tell you something. My my coach and my manager like got on me about this. So so we're always like you always got to bring your fighters. Like as you're building up on the club show, you're bringing guys in, right? And guys sometimes like playing hardball, you know, either, you know, sometimes it's rightfully so they should be paid more, but other times it's, um, they know they're going to lose. So you say bringing to, guys in, people don't know. These are guys like that will come in to fight Ed, that Ed is probably going to beat their ass. Probably. They're, they're yeah. certainly coming in on the B side. There's the A side and the B side, okay. right? Because yeah. when you get to the, when you get to the pick them fights where like the line is, is, is a difference of a hundred or not even points, right? Yeah. But um, what ends up, what I used to do is I would like I'd message guys all friendly. I'd be like, "Hey man, just trying, you know, we're trying to make the fight happen. What's going on?" And and you know, I I would love to fight you all the time. <laughs> and one one dude like took forever to show up and reply like, "Yo, way after we got a guy." And, and and he lost. He was like, "Look, man, tell your manager I smoked you, man." I'm like, "Whatever." I was like, ah, that's what I wanted to see. Yes. Now, if only you would sign the contract, this would be great. And my coach was like, "Yo, can you stop messaging guys uh, before the fight? Because that I think that's messing up our our um our ability to bring them in because like no one does that. <laughs> <laughs> guys were getting spooked." Yeah, because I'm I'm calm and just messing. Like I'm I'm trying to take on the role of a negotiator as well, and that's not my job. That's the manager's job, yeah. the promoter's job. But I'm like, dude, come on, but just can you just make the fight happen? And and and, and you know, now that I think about it, that would bug me if if a guy who has a has a perfect record is messaging me like, come on, man, can you come on and fight me? Like, please, like like that would that would bug me. Yeah, that so, sounds yeah, like a little it. bit of a mind fuck. You know, for somebody that's probably, yeah, that, that's probably the craziest thing I did. You know, I've, I've driven crazy distances to sell tickets, but that's about it. Uh, but but I never I never have pushed super super crazy or super nuts on the promo side. They put my face on a billboard one time. I had no control over that. Where was the billboard? Uh, I a <laughs> the billboard was in West Virginia. Okay, because like, there's a there's a thing that, that uh, more more things you learn about boxing, right? So. So West Virginia is an easier state to fight in, meaning the um, the, the commission yeah. requires less of the opponent. Because a lot of people don't notice you can't just bring in anybody out the street. The, the athletic commission has to go, okay, this is this fight is okay, which is why like sometimes the fights will be like mismatched, but but very often at the club level, in a decent state, the fight is a mismatch. In West Virginia, though, it's like the wild, wild west. It's like one of those states is like that. Like, um, not Indiana. Yeah, Indiana, because Chicago's in Illinois, Indiana. Okay. Pretty much like where you can just jump over the border and there's <laughs> nothing else there. Yeah, so so we'll, we'll do that. And they put me on the billboard down there, and that was cool. Hey, um, <laughs> <laughs> man, you're cool, dude. EdLattimore.com, Ed Lattimore everything. One T, by the way, in Lattimore. Oh, that, hey, man, thank you for... A lot of people put two T's, yeah. and I'm like, "What are you doing?" But I guess like if I, if I hear it, that's what you would hear based on what they teach us in school. But one T, yeah. uh, and, and one man, T. I can't I can't thank you enough. I appreciate all you're doing. Just like you know, you you're putting good stuff out there. You're helping people, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly trying, man. I, I realize that I'm 
I'm fortunate. And so, and this is just uh, my personal belief. I don't think anyone has to follow it if they don't want to. But I think the, the greatest thing you can do with your life is to help to help another life. And I'm in a position to be able to do that. And I feel like it, it's almost a responsibility. Like, like I survived all the dumb, dumb stuff I did under the influence without jail time or hurting anybody. And I have to believe that a higher power <laughs> spared me and I don't ever want to mess that up. So I'm, I'm trying to like repay the debt that I have in this short time I have left on this planet. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing it, man. I appreciate it. Hey, much appreciated, man. You have a good one. You got it, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza. And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. Podcast.